Welcome to the Educational Renaissance Podcast, where we promote a rebirth of ancient wisdom for the modern era. We seek to inspire educators by fusing the best of modern research with the insights of the great philosophers of education. Join us in the great conversation and share with a friend or colleague to keep the Renaissance spreading. Welcome to our first Educational Renaissance podcast, promoting a rebirth of ancient wisdom for the modern era. I'm here with Patrick and Colby, and my name is Jason Barney, and we're excited to be talking about why Educational Renaissance. So who wants to start us out? Well, I think we start by breaking down these two words, education, what do we mean by educating What do we mean by renaissance? What's the new thing that we're doing? Yeah, I think that's a a good place to start, breaking down those two terms. Uh, I think our modern world has a particular conception of what education is and what it's for. And part of this project is a corrective, speaking into that current conception and seeking to uh, adjust it if necessary. Yeah, and I think part of that comes down to how modern education as a whole, in a way, tried to distance itself from um, the educational thinking and philosophy of earlier eras. And maybe there's some good un- good reasons for why modern education wanted to do that, but ultimately, turning our back on the past, I think, makes us the losers because we miss out on so much of the wisdom and insight and ideas that if we were able to integrate it into the problems that we're facing in the modern world, we'd just have such a a richer set of solutions than if we didn't. Part of the Renaissance though, is that as we're reaching back to the past and getting those texts and those ideas from the past that we've lost, kind of like in Lord of the Rings, there were things that were lost that ought not to have been lost. We're finding those things. And yet there are great things in the modern world, research going on with regard to brain science, psychology, development of human beings, all of these things we don't want to lose by going to the past as well. Part of the Renaissance is trying to bring both of those together in new and creative ways so that we're educating with that deep and rich connection to the past, but also very aware of what kinds of valuable things are going on in the present that enliven education and make it valuable for students today. And Patrick, I think you really hit on why this project is really important to each of us and why we think it's valuable and unique because obviously there's this big classical education movement going on that we're all a part of to one extent or another that has already been saying the let's go back to the past motif, but too often I think classical educators have done what you said right there, gotten stuck in the past and um, have this sort of mentality that if something's old, therefore it's necessarily good or right. And that just becomes problematic at a particular point because which past are we looking back to anyways? There's something that we could really 
do well if we have a, a careful, thoughtful approach to bringing both those streams together. It's part of what I wonder if we could explore more would be how a, how the Renaissance is a good example of that in particular. I know, Patrick, you've written on this mm -hmm. some. Well, I mean, it goes to the fall of one civilization as the East is falling and all of these Greeks are gathering up their documents and fleeing from the invading Moors. They're bringing all of these documents to the West, to Italy, which was already starting to change its society. And the manuscripts of Aristotle, biblical manuscripts, all kinds of things are flooding into Milan and Venice. People are wanting to study the original languages and they're gleaning now these ancient ideas, this ancient wisdom, and it's transforming society. So the new is actually drawing upon the old, and they have these forms, the trivium, the quadrivium, the classical liberal arts model that was developed in the Middle Ages is now injected with all of this new learning and insight as they're translating Aristotle, for instance, into Latin and that becomes disseminated from these medieval universities, breathing new life into Europe, transforming society. It's a pretty exciting thing to see happen in one generation in the artwork, the architecture, the exploration then, that that causes rethinking religion. Mm -hmm. So it's shortly thereafter that they start to question the dogmas of the Middle Ages. They go back to the sources at Fontes and they rethink, well, what is biblical theology and the Reformation occurs? And so you just get this foment of all kinds of activity because we're now enabled to rethink everything. We have tools to rethink those things. And yet it's built off of this ancient stock of wisdom that was rediscovered. I think going off of that, those ideas that began to germinate during that time period also sparked uh, the rise of modern science. You've got mm -hmm. Francis Bacon and, and others, uh, you know, starting to think through what do these ideas have to say or uh, what can they lead us towards in the natural world and how we've handled gaining knowledge and insight into the natural world. And so the Renaissance and the rise of modern science, there's a reason why those intellectual movements correlated and overlapped as they've risen. Yeah, and I just think also of all those amazing art and artists and sculptors and engineering feats that really in many ways surpassed those that they were looking back to as they were getting their inspiration from for them, the ancients, the Greeks and Romans, and the ruins that they saw left behind, they're being inspired to go and, and surpass and incorporate from what they've learned and go further and hone new skills. I think of the you know master artists and having the craftsmen under them as apprentices, training for years and really honing their craft in order to go further. And so... Uh, what would it be like is if we took that whole image and applied it to education and made something more of this classical education movement than sort of a, a blip where we decided to do a throwback but not go beyond the, the throwback to what was great before. 
because you know we always have that sort of nostalgia and i feel like there's a a danger at least in uh the classical education movement of just operating based on this sort of nostalgia for the past obviously in the case of the renaissance it was in a way their nostalgia for the past that enabled them to have the inspiration to move forward into the present so i don't want to downplay that but i think there is a an appreciation of all ages that we could have that would be even more inspiring probably mm -hmm. so well building off of some of these thoughts one of the other things that i've been thinking about kind of connects to this critique of where we're at as a classical education movement how we could do this renaissance this rebirth thing better because like you mentioned already, um, Patrick, one of the principles there was at Fontes that we would go back to the sources themselves and have those um, springs, those, those founts of inspirational water that we could drink from, that we could um, really get in touch with the great thinkers and writers of earlier days. And uh, for the Renaissance people, that idea also connected with of a criticism of just building up upon the traditions of scholasticism and how they weren't getting in touch with the original sources but it was just going to what the teachers were saying about those sources and getting stuck in in that kind of secondary source place and i think that's a really rich idea for us partly because one of the things we can tend to do as we're trying to make classical education or the classical tradition palatable for an audience that's not familiar with Quintilian and Aristotle and Plato and even um, more modern post-Renaissance thinkers like Martin Luther, who's talking about many of these same things in education. One of the things we tend to do is we tend to use these sweeping generalizations to say the Greeks thought this Ooh. about education mm -hmm. and I, I hear this all the time at classical school conferences where they're just going crazy and intent on these generalizations uh, about what classical education was and I think that's really sloppy thinking that we need to be able to do better if we're actually going at Fontes. So there's several ideas that you're working with there. One is, as we're thinking about classicism, there are multiple layers of what we mean by that. So there's going back to the ancient classical world, the Greco-Roman world. You can include the Egyptians and the Middle East, and all of those locations where we are finding the foundation of civilization, our society. But then there are the developments of, say, the universities in the Middle Ages and as they continue to develop in the Renaissance. And then there's the crystallization of what the West is in the Reformation, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, where the liberal arts were so fundamental to each of those stages of development and we disconnected ourselves from that long tradition in this progressive move in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And so classicism is trying to reconnect to that whole thing. Uh -huh. And yet we sometimes lock in on one generation of that as defining what it is. And yet it was constantly developing and ebbing and flowing what, what was important in one generation might not have been as 
important as another generation. So for instance, geometry was very important early on, but as Colby was mentioning, science develops so significantly later on in that heritage, and it's totally part of the liberal arts. It wasn't disconnected from literature and poetry and art and philosophy. It was tied up in all of those things, theology even. And so we tend to think of it as all fragmented different subjects. And so part of classicism is trying to put it all back together and us stumbling in the dark trying to figure out, well, how do we put it all back together? Especially those of us who weren't raised in it. Uh, we're dusting off Plato and going, what do we do with this? And then we read Locke and we're, we're trying to connect all of these pieces that are generations apart and yet they're connected with one another. I think another reason um, to avoid the, the sort of generalization Jason was talking about uh, with regards to generalizing how the Greeks did education or how the medievals did education or the Romans or the classical tradition as a whole, uh, another reason to avoid that kind of generalization is uh, for us in the classroom today, uh, there can be a sort of angst that comes with trying to recover that tradition and, oh, if we could just get it right and perfect like it <laughs> once was. Um, when in reality, when we go back and we do the historical research, we see that there's many ways to skin a cat, as the saying goes, many specific practices that may differ in various ways, yet nonetheless, they reflect similar values. And so in one sense, I think the project is uncovering, excavating, if you will, those values in the classical tradition and where there was overlap there. And picking up on that whole notion of values then is, well, what are we trying to accomplish with education? What are students trying to accomplish with learning? And it's the confrontation of the individual with those values, those ideals of society, to be formative and transformative of the individual so that we can live good, meaningful, purposeful lives. Mm -hmm. And so in, an, in a society that's shifted to technology and technique to say, you know, all you have to do is get into college and then you choose a major and then you get a job and that's <laughs> life. We're saying, no, there's something that transcends all of that. And when you glean from the ideas of great authors throughout the generations, we can actually download a value set that helps us navigate the difficulties of life and understand its meaning and to live with meaning and purpose. And I think what we're saying as classicists is that when we reconnect with that tradition, we're actually doing something very meaningful for society today by graduating students who are now deep thinkers and they're, they're trying to connect this world of meaning that's so discordant and separated in different silos of, of thought and enterprise. Yeah, and I think this whole idea or project of going back to the past puts teachers in a pretty tricky situation because there's just so much to recover um, that I want to express. I mean, there, there are good reasons why we engage in these sweeping generalizations about classical education, but 
if it is that ebbing and flowing thing like you're talking about, Patrick, then really what we have in the whole tradition of education and how it's been thought about and how it's been practiced throughout the ages is we have a really rich source, but a very complex source. And so all of our attempts to explain it, you know, the books on what the liberal arts tradition is, for instance, are inevitably kind of stuck in this really complex challenge of trying to put in a few words what is so much more rich and varied and complex than we can really articulate very well. And so when we try to say that the liberal arts tradition was such and such, or the seven liberal arts were, you know, practiced this way, we're really caught caught up in the same problem that Dorothy Sayers had when she was saying in her essay, you know, back in 1940, let's recover the lost tools of learning. And hey, here's one way they looked like that the whole stages of learning for grammar, logic and rhetoric thing that's kind of plagued our movement and still is a part of our movement for so many schools. And yet there are more and more people coming out saying, hey, that's not really historically accurate to any time period. It's actually using a very interesting modern idea of the development of child psychology and how learning should develop and what children are like at different stages of their development. And then going back to the Middle Ages and connecting those things. So what Dorothy Sayers was engaging in is actually something sort of like what we're talking about here in an educational renaissance. Necessarily, she's taking modern ideas and her modern way of approaching things. And then her expertise as a med medievalist and a you know student of human nature and trying to forge a synthesis and propose something interesting hey what if what would it be like if we did this the middle ages had something and here's some modern ideas that could support that so i think that's really interesting but i think it it expresses the dilemma that we're in that we have all these parents that we want to express what classical education is because that's such a big issue and such a big problem but there are so many ways that we can define it and we're all arguing amongst each other about the best ones or how to do that when I feel like really this project that we're setting out on together is something that's more like let's go back to the sources let's try and take the time take the space to detail what's going on back there at the same time have in mind teachers practicing in the classrooms what do they need to do what does it look like Monday morning for me to take this insight from the past and from modern science or research or psychology, forge a synthesis, work that out in a way that's living and holistic, that accords with how we think we should view human beings as Christians, all of that. Can we do that all together and kind of hang in there for the long project of recovery and, and get that in, in teachers' hands, in home educators' hands, in the hands of administrators and staff at Christian classical schools around the country. Uh, and that's, I think, a really inspiring idea of the educational renaissance. Let's keep having that rebirth, that something old that's, that's new now, and there's more expertise to it even um, than was before. 
Yeah, so I'm wondering if, uh, you know, I feel like the last few minutes we've done a good job of articulating our general take on the classical renewal movement in the last 30, 40 years. Maybe it'd be helpful for uh, those listening in to hear a little bit about when we say modern research, a little bit more about what some of those ideas are and maybe even some of the authors that we've been interacting with that we feel is helpful in our project. Well, I think one idea that we've been working on is the concept of retrieval practice. And there's a lot of research that has been done. Washington University in St. Louis has been as a department full of people who are researching this and putting out uh, notions of how do we actually go about learning and moving things from short-term memory to long-term memory in the classroom so that students are not just gaining knowledge, but also skill in the act of learning and personalizing learning and managing their own learning. Neuroplasticity, I think, is another key concept we've investigated. And, you know, the mind is always transforming at a cellular level. And we can capitalize on that as educators when we realize that the brain you have today is not the brain you have tomorrow. And so that can help the student really get out of a rut. I don't know, who else are we looking well, at? Well, maybe today? just to develop on your um, retrieval practice comment, one of the um, passages I really appreciate from Make It Stick, which is a great book by three authors, I think two neuroscientists or cognitive psychologists and one um, novelist who worked with them to make a really readable and incredible book on the science of learning. But in their chapter on retrieval practice, there's this great passage where they talk about how these insights that they're finding on memory aren't entirely new. They seem to confirm things that you know, if you go back earlier to William James, the great psychologist, and then to Francis Bacon before him, and all the way back to Aristotle, um, he talks about how memory works and how repeatedly recalling something from memory seems to make the memory stick more or more solid. Um, I'm not sure what the exact quote is, but it's to that effect. And I think that's the type of recognition that at least some uh, among modern learning scientists are having where there's a realization that we're able to potentially support in a different way through the brain science that we have a bit available to us what have been the traditional insights about education and learning and how those things work in ways that we couldn't before. And I think that's really exciting because it allows us to have our cake and eat it too, mm -hmm. to take both ends of the spectrum and say, no, we can accept the whole tradition. We don't have to have this crazy enlightenment idea that everything before us was bad and wrong and we have to start from scratch anew and simply do our social scientific studies and our hard science because all the traditions were simply superstitious and wrong of people before, which is really an absurd position, but that's kind of part of why there was this great upheaval and, and pushing out of the old and in with the new because there was an idea that traditional wisdom about how to educate just didn't make sense. Really, the case is that we should expect a lot of the traditional insights of the past to be confirmed 
as we have, for lack of a better term, better scientific ways to confirm them, or at least different ways of confirming them than we had in the past. There are real limits, though, to something like neuroscience research. It can tell you what works in a kind of baseline level, but it doesn't tell you the broader why and values and things like that. You have to have a broader worldview and perspective from which to approach that sort of material. And so I think that's part of why classical educators can, because uh, the classical tradition had this big why that was a main part of, of what we were doing. And, that, and that's one way in which we're really different than a lot of other people in the world who don't know what they think about human beings or don't have a firm you know, Christian foundation from which to build. Some other names I think our listeners would be interested in. Uh, Cal Newport has been hugely influential on us, deep work. So to have an education where students learn how to focus their attention for long spans of time on work that's important, that's meaningful, the expression that he gives to the market value of that. In a market where distraction is the name of the game, how much more rare and therefore valuable is attention, focused work, work that creates something meaningful for society. And so uh, opportunities to develop deep work habits in students is, is huge. Uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi is somebody Jason and I have both uh, enjoyed learning about states of flow where you actually get beyond distraction and roadblocks to actually really delve deeply into your creative self and work hard at something. Uh, uh, so Cal Newport and Csikszentmihalyi really yeah. dovetail nicely together. And even someone like Carol Dweck with her growth mindset, I think mm -hmm. there are a lot of things that we're seeing come out of positive psychology as a movement that connect in interesting ways with, say, Aristotle and aspects of the virtue tradition and you know, when you get into reading even someone like Boethius and all these discussions of what does happiness really look like, there's a whole rich tradition of reflection on that. And many of the kind of practices and ideas that positive psychology is pointing to mirror or reflect those ideas in interesting ways. So like the flow one, for instance, the idea that we're actually most happy when we're mm. engaged in a meaningful activity, trying to stretch our skills beyond where we're currently at, but not being challenged to the point of despair. Mm -hmm. uh, that's an amazing idea. And I think it connects very well with Greek ideas of excellence. Uh, well, let me not say Greek. Let's mm -hmm. make sure we're clear. Aristotle's ideas on excellence and virtue mm -hmm. theory and how we're most likely to have an enduring happiness when we're pursuing excellence, whether it's intellectual excellence, moral excellence, or excellence of the body, excellence in the arts, all of those things, you know, when we're stretching ourselves, that's what we get. So that's why uh, I've written this kind of series, just taking the flow articles from Csikszentmihalyi and trying to explore what are some connections because he has this great um, chapter in his kind of iconic book from the late 90s or 80s, I think, that's all about the flow of thought and how when you're doing the, the education thing, the learning thing, when you're engaged in learning of all different types of, of the subjects, 
that's one way to get into flow and to experience that sort of state of happiness. So, yeah, and how interesting that, that we have this modern psychologist who's making these observations about the conditions best for, for human flourishing. And, and like we're saying, uh, many of these observations aren't actually new. They're, they're centuries old, in some cases, millennia old. I, I think back to Aristotle you were mentioning, who uh, said, uh, the happy life is constituted of the life of effort. In our modern world today, we have this low view of, of work in which work is labor and it's toil and it, it ought to be avoided. Uh, we clock, into our, clock in and out of our nine to five job for the paycheck so that we can get home and avoid work. And, uh, and unfortunately, what we end up doing, uh, especially with the rise of, of online streaming, and uh, let the record show that in the past two weeks, Disney Plus just came out, right? Mm -hmm. So another streaming service. We're racing home to turn on our screens and spend the remainder of our evenings avoiding work, avoiding meaningful work, and instead really uh, passively consuming the creative work of others, really. Uh, so I, I do think that rediscovering the value of work and the why behind work is, is important mm. uh, for this project. And I think of Angela Duckworth as well. I think she'd be another modern mm -hmm. writer that we're interacting with. Uh, so she wrote the book Grit and, and really explored uh, this idea of, of hard work and effort and and how often we overvalue talent and even buy into this false notion that talent is why the most successful among us have been so successful when, when really um, it's, it's a combination of talent and effort. Mm -hmm. So if we can train our students in the, the skill of, of grit and, and this idea of passion and perseverance uh, we're setting up our students for long-term mm -hmm. success yeah i like her formula that effort it's 2x effort to every one talent and so you can have a highly talented kid who puts in no effort you know they're writing their talent and then you've got another kid of modest talent but who puts in the effort and that you can just predict they're going to go farther in this field than the talented kid. And so, you know, what's nice about the, the modern ancient blending of uh, thought and intention behind what our project is with educational renaissance is trying to bring these worlds together into a meaningful dialogue because classicism isn't just about the past. This is an era where we're doing classicism now which makes classicism an awkward word to begin with. But it's the word that helps define what we're doing. In and among all of this is a question of how. And so uh, Jason brought up one lady, uh, and I think we are happy to introduce that one lady uh, to another lady that's been very important for us in thinking through how we bring all of this together, and that's Charlotte Mason. Uh, she's somebody that has been very meaningful, an educational philosopher who's been very meaningful, who has a foot in the world of the ancient world and a foot in the world of modern research. And so I thought maybe it would be helpful to our listeners to, to hear uh, an encapsulation of what Charlotte Mason is about. 
Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think Charlotte Mason, um, this late 19th century, early 20th century British educator is an incredible example of what we're on about in trying to fuse the old and the new, because one of the things that she was trying to do in particular, um, and she states as much in the beginning of home education, is she is trying to take the best of modern science, by which she meant not just um, kind of hard science, but modern philosophy and the legitimate developments that she was seeing in her day that clarified things from a Christian perspective and apply those to education. And she read widely in educators, both you know, educational thinkers, both of her own day and of earlier eras. I, I think she's a great example of trying to do this. You know, I know there are people on both side of this, sides of the spectrum for Charlotte Mason. There are those who would want to argue that Charlotte Mason is anti-classical tradition or classical education. I've read a blog article of um, a particular person who feels this very strongly and makes a strong argument for, you know, her connections to Pestalozzi and people like Comenius who were critiquing uh, classical education as it was expressed in their day. And I, I think that is just in and, in, in and of itself a misunderstanding of the classical tradition and what we might mean by the classical tradition. Because if you have a broad and wide and deep and rich sort of classical tradition, you are inevitably going to have prophetic voices at any point along the way of that tradition who are calling out how classical education is being done at that time. And they're part of the tradition for doing so. The fact that, you know, Comenius is dissing the liberal arts and how they were being expressed at the, at, during his day doesn't necessarily mean that Comenius is an anti-classical educator. Now, is that crazy? Does that put us into a, a, a situation where all modern educators are therefore part of the classical tradition because they're criticizing how the classical tradition was focused in the day? No, I don't think that's crazy because I think there's a way in which we can have a broad understanding of values and goals where there is continuity, but then there's discontinuity underneath of that. And so you could still have a legitimate kind of grouping of classical educators are really going for this goal as their purpose. And it's not a narrow utilitarian one. And there is a way in which the modern education shifted things to focus on serving a, you know, modern state and its uh, economic goals in ways that are different from the classical tradition. Not to say that that didn't happen in particular countries and times previously. In fact, we could say there's that impulse uh, all throughout the history of education. There are negative impulses that are not what we would call classical. So I, th I think there's still something to the name. I think we need to explore that more. But um, Charlotte Mason is a great example, I think, of holding both things together where she's really drawing on um, this deep well and then interacting with educational thinkers of her own day as a Christian you know, in a way that really isn't just caving 
to the modern movements. So again, I think she's a great example for us of what we're trying to do, as well as being um, a rich source uh, and a great educational thinker in her own right with so many practices um, that embody the principles of the classical tradition in a modern classroom. Because classrooms have not looked the same in every era and time and place. Right, well, and particularly since World War II, uh, when all of these veterans came back and started having families of their own, and, and really the, um, the classrooms in the United States just exploded with students, and modern educators had to figure out um, how they were going to provide a, an, an education for 20, 30 students in a classroom mm. throughout the school day. These are challenges that are unique to, to our context and to the context of the 20th century. Um, but what I appreciate about Charlotte Mason, if we could talk more about her, is that her view of education flows from her view of children as persons. Though in the modern world we are educating more children than ever, and you know, in the typical modern classroom today, we're packing these classrooms full of children. Something Charlotte Mason really will remind us of is that uh, these children are persons. They are created in God's image. Uh, they were created with curiosity, uh, with a desire to engage meaningfully in this world. Uh, they have desires. Uh, they have passions. Uh, they have interests. Um, they have weaknesses. They have strengths. And part of the education that Charlotte Mason is putting forth for us is one in which we take seriously that personhood and provide the sort of education that, that honors that. Mm. And some uh, really practical things in the classroom that she provides are thing, concepts like narration or habit mm. training where it brings the teacher and the student and the text together in ways that enable the student to really assimilate knowledge, uh, the values we talked about, to help provide direction to the student in terms of uh, gleaning the most from that. And then you combine that with habit training in the classroom where we're helping students acquire those intellectual and physical habits that enable them to really gain mastery over themselves, to do things like deep work and engage with texts that can sometimes be rather challenging, yeah. like Aristotle or uh, Locke or whoever. Yeah, so um, just to recap some of what we've discussed and how we've gone, um, where we've gone so far with this idea of an educational renaissance, we've come up with this tagline promoting a rebirth of uh, ancient wisdom for the modern era. And I feel like that sort of en encapsulates a lot of what we've said about the idea of having an educational renaissance and how that could bring fruit and enliven our um, classical education movement as a whole. And that's something that we want to pr promote. I think that's why we have started this project of educational renaissance, why we're now adding the podcast, because we want to get many of these ideas in people's hands. We want them to be able to 
uh, engage in that rebirth where we're taking something old that's been lost and dead in a way and bringing it back and having it be born anew, not in a kind of old, stale, crystallized form where we're just looking back to the past without any liveliness for the present, but um, something that's real new here and where we can take, we have the benefit of hindsight for goodness sake, right? We can take all of these insights and look at the tradition as a whole and synthesize it and think about it and criticize it. Um, we don't have to have just one viewpoint of saying everything we talk about that's from the past is positive. Mm. We can actually look at it square in the face and say, these things were bad. As Christians and modern people, we have sensibilities, we have convictions, and some of the things that were going on in the past are bad, and here's the best mm. of thousands of years of educational insight. Let's optimize that. Let's put that in the classroom. Let's continue to try it out. Not that we're doing experiments on mm -hmm. the students in our classes, the children in our homes, um, but we're, we're really just gleaning the best that we can mm -hmm. and enacting that in a, in a lively way, in a way where we're really trying to embody it uh, and embody the principles and trying out new practices with a twist because our context is different. We're in a different culture. Education, while having overarching goals and a big picture why, does also have some near-term, like, students need to be prepared for the modern world in particular ways. So, anyways, those are some of my thoughts about our tagline. Uh, what thoughts do you guys have? I think you summed it up really well. I'm, I'm reminded of the quote from uh, Augustine, the great church father, that we ought to plunder the Egyptians of their gold. Uh, just like Israel on their exodus from slavery in Egypt, um, took with them the, the gold and other value, uh, valuable items with them, and God commanded them to do so. As educators, we want to plunder the treasure trove of wisdom and insights from the past centuries that education has been conducted. We want to leave no rock uh, unturned uh, in order to provide the, the education. Mm -hmm. Well, we have covered a lot of ground today couple of things for our listeners we will plan to put in our show notes some of the resources we've talked about today that we think will be most valuable for them to start their own journey their own educational renaissance to glean from the ancient world for the modern era you know we also want to direct you to our website educationalrenaissance.com where you can read what we've been writing about on a weekly basis sign up for email updates we've got a number of resources up there free ebooks things where we're trying to help promote this rebirth for you and please share us with your with um with your friends with colleagues with others who would be interested in this project you know we're we're trying to do something really unique here with this mixing and blend of ancient wisdom for the modern era and um, so we would love for you to do that. Um, follow us on Facebook, share our posts with your friends. We're really trying to promote something that we feel is important and will really move um, our educational movement to the next level. So um, any way you can support and share this would be great and appreciated.